when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Hello and welcome to Bloomcast, the show that tries to navigate between the skiller of misapprehension and the charybdis of overinterpretation, but which more often than not finds itself drifting aimlessly between the wandering rocks and a hard place. I'm Adam Biles, literary director here at Shakespeare and Company, and as always I'm joined by Alice McCrum, programs manager at the American Library in Paris, as well as international man of mystery, Professor Lex Paulson. Alice, Lex, welcome. Hello, Adam. Good to be back. Now, before we dive into the treacherous seas of Stephen's Hamlet lecture, I have a question for you sent in by Michael James in Hobart, Tasmania. He writes, One question that needs to be broached sometime soon. If you were to cast Ulysses, who might play the different roles? He says he'd love to see a joking phoenix as Bloom, and then also adds, speaking of which, wouldn't it be cool if a dreamlike director like Michel Gondry or Guillermo del Toro tackled Ulysses? So, um, who wants to go first? Well, I, I also, I'll start with the director. I don't necessarily have... Uh, actors for Stephen or Bloom. I do have actors for Dilly and Molly. So for Molly, I would cast Olivia Colman, famous from The Crown, mm, which she choice. plays, thank you, Lex, from Elizabeth II. And for Dilly, I would cast Saoirse Ronan, of course, Irish, famous from Little Woman and Lady Bird. And to and direct... Grand Hotel, let's not forget. And the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, and to direct it, I would have Terence Malick, um, for his experimentation with time, narrative, and cinematic devices, and so on. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's that Terence Malick's a nice choice too. So, um, our I our... should just say at this moment that I have decided several years ago that life was far too short for any more Terence Malick films. But I that's know. just that's just <laughs> a personal thing. Is this, is, this, is this a digression, or is this really smack on your on your? Uh... You know, hermeneutics of, uh, of, of, of the Ulysses. <laughs> Makes movie. very sad to hear that, um, Adam. So, who who would you cast? Right. So, um, for <laughs> Mr. Our, our professor, our professor uh, Declan uh, Kybird Kybird Kybert um, writes in um, in his in his book on Ulysses, uh, Ulysses and the Art of Everyday uh, Living, that one of the interesting things about Bloom is that he's almost never physically described. Um, we know almost everything there is to know about Bloom's inner life, but we really don't know what he looks like. And when when uh, Kybert asks his uh, his class to describe physically describe Leopold Bloom, uh, people make a description. It's usually a description of Milo O'Shea, the character who played Bloom uh, in the famous uh, film version uh, from the 1960s, and uh, who I also loved because Milo O'Shea not only is he for me the the image I have of Bloom, but he also plays uh, a part in The West Wing, one of my favorite um, TV series, as the retiring liberal, slightly dotty, poetry-quoting Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Um, so Milo is shaped. So, but if we had to pick another one, so I'll leave Bloom, Bloom aside. Stephen, I think, is a little bit easier. I would pick someone like a young... Paul Bettany or Jude Law as a as a Stephen like Jude a troubled Law. I think a tr- like a troubled <laughs> I think I think Jude Law could play it actually um, I, think and, you would, I, I really didn't want to have to say this it's probably Timothy Chalamet no 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 no, no. <laughs> sorry I'm going on record Terence Malick and Timothy not Chalamet are enough. not yeah. in, sorry yeah. they're not in our collective Ulysses. <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't be sorry. I guess one. Of, I guess we have to be a democracy about this guy. So, and, and in terms of director, I think, um, I think Jude Law. I actually sort of think someone like John Cassavetes. Have you guys ever seen his movies from mm-hmm. the '70s? Sure. A little bit more, kind of a little bit random, little all over the place. Or um, who's the guy very famous for his for the dialogue that kind of people step on each other in the dialogue? Um, you got he directed Perry Home Companion. Um, or you know maybe even someone like Mamet. Uh, I guess he's a screenwriter, mm. but uh, mm. um, who Rod Altman? Roger Altman um, might also be a candidate for this wordy, wordy, windy book. I wondered if you were heading towards Aaron Sorkin there as well, also one of your heroes. I well, imagine. for Chapter Twelve, we will see when we when we get into the pub um, and the and the political debates that ensue. It's there's a, there are some Sorkinian moments um, that we'll uh, we'll get to next week. And so, have you seen the the film from the sixties? Mm, the Joseph Strick is it? Oh, it's 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 great. Um, in fact, I saw it probably before I read the book. It used to be on PBS, and even like the weird Cersei, like hallucinogenic bits, they they did a, I think a great job. And then there was a more recent version called Bloom that came out the year of the hundredth, um, the centenary of the of June sixteenth, nineteen o four, that played uh, in a film festival in Dublin that I saw with a very different looking actor. I think his name is pa- uh, Stephen Ray. Uh, played uh, Leopold Bloom, much thinner, had a mustache, looked nothing like Milo O'Shea. Um, but also did a, a marvelous performance. So those are the two film versions that I. So I'm going to give you the now definitive version. In fact, Alice, I'm going to bring in your <laughs> Olivia Coleman and Saoirse Ronan because I think they're incredibly casting, uh, incredible casting oh, choices. Yeah. But I will put them alongside for Stephen, Paul Dano, or Paul Dano. Oh, yes, good. That's a good choice. yes, um, yes. Well yeah, done. Dano, yeah. And yeah, yeah, and yeah, and then exactly, so some yeah, my yeah. my logic. Little Miss Sunshine. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so my logic developed from this. Because also he stars in There Will Be Blood alongside Daniel Day-Lewis, yep. who suddenly becomes the perfect bloom. <laughs> in your opinion. Very in interesting. Wh- in case, handsome bloom. In which case, who would then direct it? Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson. I was okay. thinking that this morning and then I thought, uh, well, no, I and don't so, no, but, but, what, Adam, but not only has he... I don't think so. Not only has he... <laughs> proven his might with his sort of his his versatility in the different films he's he's adapted he's also one of those films was inherent vice and so if you can adapt to thomas pynchon it's probably you, you know you've Jones. earned your stripes to at least give james joyce a go mm-hmm. make it a ulysses finnegan's wake uh, double feature incredible <laughs> <laughs> okay can i put a final molly i think kathleen deneuve would make a nice molly blue no <laughs> there are more no's than yeses uncharacteristically for our book there are so many yeses to come I've heard okay here we go okay a little bit more um, correspondence before mm. we um, dive into the the straits um, of uh, Scylla and uh, Scylla and Charybdis um, so we heard from uh, Martin Bayliss um, who has just wanted to say that he has begun the book so many times but never completed it and hopes he will do this time and he also wants more on William James Alice so Mark that down okay, for, uh, for... Is this your pseudonym? Alice, <laughs> as Martin Bayliss? I, I can definitely um, say more about William James with pleasure, Martin. Okay, so look forward to that mm. in future Bloomcast, or maybe even in today's Bloomcast, who knows? Uh, moving on, we heard from Patrick Kennedy, uh, who recalls being in Dublin for Bloomsday celebrations in 2004, which I believe... Patrick, I remember you. <laughs> that, was, that was you behind those uh, behind the, the Gorgonzola and Burgundy at Davy Burns. Well, quite. In fact, so um, Patrick chose Sandy Cove as his 8am start rather than Eccles Street, which mm. is probably... Um, we might be able to interpret maybe in a Jamesian way as to uh, find out a little bit more about Patrick's personality. He says he hopes to get to Bloomsday this year to celebrate the uh, centenary of publication. Um, so we should probably say a little bit about our plans for Bloomsday. And yeah, we should. And this touches on a correspondence uh, I heard from Chilla Uza Roussel, 
um, on email. She writes, hello, Alice, James, Joyce, introduction, iPod one with you, Lex Paulson and Shakespeare and Co was excellent. Listening forward to listening to iPod two. She goes on, you may have already have something planned for James Joyce at the American Library as well. Would be wonderful if Lex could speak. Perhaps that would be a conflict of interest. <laughs> so there are so many things to say about this email. Where do we begin? Chilla. <laughs> Where do we begin? Close reading. Um, so Chilla is someone who I know well, is in our book club, the Citizens Book Club, which started in this room, I might say, nearly 10 years ago. Um, and uh, should we talk about our plans for June 16th? Yeah, well, so at Shakespeare and Company... Should um, we make some plans for June 16th? <laughs> well, in the daytime, I mean, it's become a tradition um, at Shakespeare and Company to celebrate Bloomsday. Um emceed by the one and only Mr. Lex Paulson. Um, whether permitting or whether unpermitting, we will set out, set up on the terrace outside the bookstore. We will set up chairs. We will set up microphones. We will set up gorgonzola on toast. We will serve Guinness. We will serve Burgundy. We'll probably serve a little bit of champagne. And Lex, what will you curate for us? Well, day? so this is something that actually was inspired by Patrick Hastings and your conversation with him and uh, his preface to his book on Ulysses about remembering... Bloomsday celebrations at Shakespeare and Co. in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, 2003, around there, where people not only read from the book, which is what we do, we usually read from the book um, and sing um, some of the music from the book, um, but also spoke about their, you know, testified, as we would say back home, to um, to their love of the book and, and things they loved about it. And I think that would be great. I think that I think this year, since we're going to be in no hurry and since we're going to have people probably from many countries joining us in front of this this bookshop that we should um, open up in the way that James Joyce, you know, broke apart the novel. We should maybe break apart our own uh, standard Bloomsday, as wonderful as it is, and uh, and open it to different kinds of celebrations mm. of the book. And so all of that testimony will culminate in the three of us finding ourselves for a 7.30 p.m. start at the American Library for a final discussion about our experience of reading Ulysses. So if you've been listening to this podcast in France or in Paris, please do come along to the American Library. It's very close by. It's a 15-minute bike ride, a 25-minute walk, um, and we'd love to meet you in person. And it will be a lovely way, I think, to, to finish off this long meditation on the long book the final ever bloom casting we, we may even like studio audience yeah exactly i think we, we may even put on clothes for that since we never have bothered <laughs> to get dressed you know as we yeah. record this podcast we'll you know we'll make a special effort for all of you all of you bloomians out there um i should also say that patrick kennedy sent in a photo of a framed facsimile of the evening telegraph from the 16th of june 1904 mm. um something which now i covered so if anybody has a spare copy that they want to send in uh adam bio shakespeare and company 37 rue de la boucherie paris france um a couple of other bits of correspondence quickly before we move on we had a, an email from david willis in la um i'm not sure i entirely understand david's email but it fascinated me nonetheless i'm going to read it he said amid the dysfunction and gloom of today's world i'm grateful for the four months distraction of shakespeare and company bringing the, into focus the 18th section of ulysses as synchronicitously the James Webb Space Telescope fine-tunes its 18 mirrors to bring into focus another universe. Um, he then also goes on to say, is it merely a coincidence that Joyce wrote most of Ulysses in a city that glorifies Flannery, our Stephen and Bloom, nothing if not flaneurs of everything? I think it's wonderfully written. Thank you, David Willis. Um, no, I think, I, think, uh, I think you're on to something, both um, the kind of cosmic... Uh, resonances, which Joyce was very attuned to, and which actually we're going to get into uh, in in episode nine of Scylla versus Charybdis. Um, absolutely, I think there's a there's a uh, there's a resonance there with the James Webb 
telescope and different ways of looking at the world. In fact, I think these 18 chapters are 18 very distinct ways of, um, of looking at a place, in this case, Dublin. Um, and of course, uh, in Ithaca, I won't give, give away what happens uh, as Bloom and Stephen are, are making their way back, but uh, there's, a, there's a cosmological uh, moment uh, toward the end of the book that uh, you might look forward to, David. Um, and f as post as uh, for the, the flaneur, I, you know, as we've as we've mentioned, this is a book about public space, which is one of the reasons why I love it and how people move through space and think as they move through space. And that is, you know, the art of the flaneur um, boulevardier, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in a nutshell. And so um, I think that's right. I think that Joyce, maybe one of the reasons he loved Paris so much is that it gave him a, a beautiful city to move and think in. Which is something we're going to get onto in episode 10. So yeah, should we yeah, yeah, hop on to... Well, just before we do, I have one final bit of correspondence. And a few weeks ago, I complained that uh, <laughs> none of my friends or family had written in um, to, uh, to with, with, with their compliments or their criticisms of uh, Bloomcast. Well, I don't know if he's a regular listener, but knowing what I was doing, my dad actually sent me a message. And the message simply read, remember this, and included this photo. Mm, that is the Martello Tower. That is the Martello Tower. And that is you? That is me. No. Barely out of adolescence. No, I, in, I would say not very far out of adolescence. This would have been 1999. Oh my 1999, God. 2000, so I'd have been 20 at that point. We are, Alice and I um, are, are, go are goggling at this picture of a, what can only black. be called as Adam in somewhat of an awkward phase. A ute. With a hoodie. <laughs> Uh, and, and I guess you call them trainers, um, standing on, on, on this tower, not looking like he's not quite sure what to do up here on this tower Absolutely. And, and staring at this not green sea. And the thing that really struck me when I saw that is that I, as I said before in this podcast, I am now the age roughly of Bloom and of Joyce when he published Ulysses. Here, I was more or less exactly the same age as Stephen. Um, and I think we'll probably come on to talk about how, how much of, um, Ulysses does feel like sort of. Joyce of a certain age, re-encountering Joyce of another age. Right. And um, and yeah, just seeing this photo, which I hadn't seen for around 20 years. No, I think that threw you, me back you're, you're bringing that. to life Stephen's point in uh, that he makes National Library, which is that the man in act, the boy in act one uh, is the man in act five, right? This is the... One of the key moments. Okay. So the National Library. National well, Library. Take us there, Lex. So here we are. We're, we're in the National Library of Dublin, one of the um, you know, great centers of, of learning and study in which no one really seems to be studying or learning, uh, in this chapter anyway. Um, the, uh, the main characters are Stephen and the what could only be called the intelligentsia of literary Dublin, uh, George Russell, uh, known by the um, pseudonym A.E., um, John Eglinton, also a pseudonymous name, a librarian whose name is Lister. So they begin with uh, Lister, the librarian, praising uh, Goethe and his observations about Hamlet, uh, who he calls the, the beautiful, ineffectual dreamer who comes to grief against hard facts, uh, which, of course, uh, is something we might, we might say about Stephen, too. Um, this leads uh, very naturally into a uh, kind of intellectual war of words. And um, the reason why this chapter is called Scylla and Charybdis is that um, the, at the moment in the Odyssey after Odysseus and his men have, have made it back from Hades, um, Circe is about to send them on their journey and um, gives Odysseus and his men the choice between um, sailing through the wandering rocks, which he chooses not to do, um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, navigating through another treacherous uh, 
part of the ocean that uh, he has to thread um, between two uh, competing threats on one side, a, a, a craggy mountain pass with a six-headed monster, uh, fierce uh, human-eating monster named Scylla, and on the other side, a, a whirling maelstrom um, uh, known as Charybdis. And Circe advises Odysseus to hug the cliff of Scylla, but do not try to combat her. Odysseus, um, in his own fashion, does not quite listen to this advice, uh, tries to fight Scylla, but they, uh, him and his men are distracted um, over their shoulder by the whirlpool of Shribdis and disaster ensues. Uh, in this case, there are many Scyllas uh, and Shribdises, um, but uh, they include Aristotle, dogma, empiricism uh, as stand-ins for Scylla, um, Plato, mysticism, uh, metaphysics, uh, as stand-ins for uh, for Charybdis uh, as well. There's a lot, quite a lot about Shakespeare and the question of uh, whether Shakespeare's life and in particular his marriage um, tells us anything useful about Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Stephen argues very much that it does. Um, the intelligentsia argue very much that it does not. Uh, and um, then Stephen propounds the theory that he was teasing earlier in the morning on the Martello Tower or that Buck Mulligan was teasing for him um, that uh, Stephen's thesis on uh, on Hamlet uh, that he presents, of course, to, not to Haynes, who was promised the theory early in the day, but to these uh, to these Irish writers. Um, he goes through quite a lot of twists and turns, um, including the uh, proposal that that um, Anne Hathaway was an older woman who had seduced a younger Shakespeare and that Shakespeare's plays represent um, playing out this feeling of betrayal, feeling out the the, the, the usurping uh, brothers. Shakespeare had brothers who stayed in Stratford while he was in, in London. And Stephen uh, goes into battle, um, although we get the sense as he's overhearing himself in his own thoughts that he doesn't put a lot of faith or stock into what he's saying, um, where uh, we actually get Eglinton, one of the characters, you know, asking him point blank at the end of his bravura performance, uh, Stephen, do you believe what you've just said? And he says no. Um, <laughs> so, which is a great, uh, a great moment. Uh, Buck Mulligan um, sallies in uh, with a with an amen um, from the corner uh, and begins to give his own um, uh, great literary idea, which is a play about masturbation called "Every Man His Own Wife." Uh, and he's very pleased at this at this uh, inspiration and and and, and proceeds to elaborate upon it in great detail. Um, Stephen. Stephen um, is then um, made aware that that everybody else in this little group of uh, intellectuals has plans to meet up later, but those plans do not include Stephen. Um, so he's feeling aggrieved and excluded uh, yet again um, and feels, as he says, uh, one behind. In this case, it is Bloom who is entering uh, Stephen's awareness uh, for the first time uh, in the day. Uh, the, the chapter then ends uh, with Stephen leaving the library I'm thinking of the lines uh, from the end of Shakespeare's, one of Shakespeare's final plays, Cymbeline, um, uh, the, the, the smoke of fires of truce and reconciliation uh, and the lines ceasing to strive. And so he ceases his intellectual combat uh, and goes uh, into the rest of his day. Lovely. And so the first question we had to broach this enormous episode in which we're going to broach Plato, Aristotle, Hamlet, and all of Shakespeare, it seems, is who are the whirlpool and many-headed monster in this library, Adam, Lex? 
I think a, a couple of general points before Lex goes into the um, precisions. <laughs> um, I, I think for me, there's a, there's a couple that, um, that raise their monstrous heads, so to speak. Um, and I think there's the, the broad sense of the skiller of looking for too much meaning and the Charybdis of meaningless. And I think one thing that Joyce does with this, and I think that, that is crystallized in that moment when towards the end of the chapter, Stephen is asked if he believes it and he says no, is that clearly Stephen has invested a lot emotionally and intellectually in the, the life of the mind and the, the poss possibility of transcendence through that life. And yet that transcendence still eludes him. And I think there's definitely this tension at work, these two monsters, as in, can the life of the artist, can the life of the mind provide some sort of, if not meaning, if not transcendence, then at least some sort of sucker? Or is it utterly meaningless drivel? And, and, and life of the mind, which can be a life that transports you away from a place and transports you out of the constraints of a, you know, of a, of a Catholic conservative um, a petty minded community, which I think Stephen wants to do, but also one that grounds him in a place. I mean, we, we saw him walking down Sandy Mount um, Beach and trying to really be in the moment in the world uh, in a way that um, that he sort of fails to do, but he's experimenting with different ways of thinking and looking uh, about a place as well. So I think that there's a lot um in this chapter about the how do you thread your way between two extremes um uh, on the one hand you have the 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 theosophists which is this movement late 19th century movement of irish mystics who um you know would do these uh, uh clairvoyant ceremonies and talk about the you know being visited by spirits but also the importance of the irish myths and legends and um and that they were very grounded in, in Neoplatonic philosophy, which is not the part about Socrates asking questions, but the part about rather forms and and uh, unchanging spiritual realities behind the the illusion of of the material world. And I think both Stephen and Bloom um, steer their ship in the other direction uh, against this idea of the truth of the world being somewhere else, the truth of the world being um, eternal, and rather the truth of the world being um, material here, our lives, uh, which we only can understand partially. Uh, and that was Aristotle's response. Aristotle, the great student of, of Plato. Um, if you gave me a time machine tomorrow, I know exactly where I would go in the 360s <laughs> in Athens to see uh, a young, you know, to see this kind of this kind of chapter, but, you know, around a table um, in the academy uh, between Plato and Aristotle. I mean, these these two thinkers have done more certainly in the West than, than any other any two thinkers to shape uh, these questions about how we how we see the world, how where do we find truth, how do we live, um, and and so I think uh, I think both Stephen, if you remember the 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 great painting of the School of Athens uh, that Raphael uh, in the in the in the Renaissance have all of the philosophers and in the two central figures are Plato and Aristotle, and Plato, the older man, is pointing up, which is where he thinks the truth and and reality is, and Aristotle has his hand outstretched with his palm facing down to the earth to the ground where he thinks the reality. Of, of of human existence uh, is and, and should be found and 
I do think, like Odysseus's ship, um, that both Stephen and Bloom hug the rocks of Aristotle. But of course, Aristotle is, is also uh, used in the in the Jesuit tradition uh, as a source of dogma. And so the, the great admiration of Aristotle's empirical approach and logic became, by the Middle Ages, ossified. And so where we were sitting here in, in the left bank of Paris was, you know, if you were coming here as a student, um, the first thing you would study is Aristotle's logic. And, and it was integrated by people like Aquinas into, into the Catholic faith. Uh, Aristotle was, was Christianized. And so you have, you know, Stephen's Jesuit side, which he's trying to, in a, in a way, distance himself from, but which he can't help falling back on because it's so great, has so much intellectual ammunition. So he's, he's drawing upon this Jesuit education um, to argue against this metaphysical, airy-fairy version of, of life into a more practical, logical, uh, present, material way of, of living life, which, of course, Bloom does uh, without having to argue for it. He just does by doing it. I think it's also unsurprising that in the middle of this discussion about platonic forms on the one hand and aristotelian matter on the other enters shakespeare's hamlet um and so this this is from uh, my page 237 um stephen says the model schoolboy would find hamlet's musings and the afterlife of his princely soul the improbable insignificant and undramatic monologue as shallow as Plato's. So there's a parallel here. He's drawing a parallel between Hamlet's musings on the one hand and Plato's musings on the other. And yet it seems to me that precisely to the point that you've both been making, Hamlet somehow collapses Platonic forms and Aristotelian matter. And I found this very famous um, uh, soliloquy from, from, Ham, from Hamlet this morning, um, which I think really draws out this tension. Because on the one hand, Hamlet is musing on and I'll read this and, and listeners would know this from the play. So this is from Act 2, Scene 2. Um, this is when Rosencrantz and Gilderstern have been sent by uh, Hamlet. <laughs> sent by his stepfather and, and mother to spy on him. And so he says, What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. So here we have platonic forms in extremis. And then he says, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? And so you have Aristotle and Plato side by side in the same soliloquy, the same meditation on, on the nature of life. And Hamlet, um, you know, Hamlet becomes the central figure of the uh, of the rest of the discussion. Um, and we see also this this return of the idea of the of of the the ghost and the and the absent father. And I think, to be honest, you know, this is a very difficult chapter to follow all the arguments about Shakespeare. Uh, you get a lot of Stevens' inner inner monologue. Um, this is a chapter that that definitely you know bring your new Bloomsday book or or uh, the, your Gifford uh, Bloomsday annotated um, if if you really want to get in the weeds. To me, what's much more interesting about this chapter is not necessarily the intricacies of the argument about Shakespeare. Though we'll come back to the art and the and the artist um, is as much as what it says about Stephen that Stephen's putting on a performance he knows he's putting on a performance um, he kind of enjoys it he kind of wants to make an impression but you see him um, kind of in a dialectic with himself that he he knows what he's doing is insincere he knows that this is not these are not his people this is not his tribe um, that he is not 
in this community. He's not accepted, and this is not his place. Uh, even though, funnily enough, and and Kyber points this out, you know, the other characters, these intelligentsia, are actually paying pretty close attention to what Stephen's saying. That you know, these adults, both in Aeolus in the newspaper office and and here in the library, they they see Stephen's talent, right? And they know Stephen is is uh, is uh, is a, has a, a huge mind and a, and a deep reading, but uh, but Stephen himself feels very much still on the outside in the way that Hamlet does in in his own drama. I think you've put your finger on something as well, Lex, with the um, the Stephen having this kind of dual dialectic going on while the conversation is going on essentially outside of him. So you have this right. internal and this external dialectic going on, and I think that's one of the reasons this chapter can be so difficult to read. As I remember when I was going back through it, I had to go back several times to try and figure out what was actually being said out loud and what was what Stephen was thinking. And I can only imagine that was deliberate on Joyce's part to kind of uh, to, to wrong foot the, the reader in a way. I wanted to cite, uh, we didn't mention this in previous episodes, but in February of this year, Maureen Dowd wrote an op-ed called DC and Joyce, both incomprehensible because she's doing her master's at Columbia right now in Irish literature, studying with Com Tobin. And she writes in the op-ed, which I would recommend reading, She's a fantastic essayist. Borrow a thought from Yeats's poem, The Fascination of What's Difficult. Is Ulysses hard because it's great or do people assume it's great because it's hard? <laughs> I, I wasn't a big fan of that op-ed and I think, I, think, I, think she was, I think she was maybe poorly edited. But using words like incomprehensible, throwing that around, number one, it scares people away from the book. Oof. Number two, these facile <laughs> comparisons to modern politics is saying that, that modern Washington, D.C., which Maureen Dowd wants to draw a comparison to, is somehow like James Joyce's Ulysses, I mean, you could make a really interesting set of observations about um, what Bloom and the citizen are debating and how nationalism is is shown to be the the great lie and illusion that it is. But um, unfortunately, it's all about, oh, this book's so hard to read and politics stink. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, find, I didn't find the essay all that uh, convincing myself. I'm not, I'm not going to be the casting vote on this because, <laughs> because, because I haven't read it. Not for but any, I do uh... like Marine Dowd. I like her other writings, but this wasn't one of my favorites. Uh, if you do want to read a great one, um, read Ambassador Dan Mulhall's, uh, he's the Irish ambassador to Washington, wrote a fantastic piece about how reading Ulysses helped him be a better diplomat in the 21st century. Um, there is a, is a gangbusters uh, piece. Maybe we can get uh, get the ambassador um, on the podcast at some point. He, is, um, he throws a great Bloomsday celebration, Bloomsday plus Yates celebration that my father goes to every year in Washington. And uh, we can maybe link to the Washington Post uh, op-ed. Uh, but sticking with um, sticking with Shakespeare and sticking with Hamlet, uh, the figure of Anne Hathaway um, occupies quite a lot of time, quite a lot of space in this in this conversation, and yet remains a kind of mysterious, enigmatic um, figure, both historically and as a as a presence in Ulysses. So what we know about Anne Hathaway in 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 history is that she was uh, older than Shakespeare that she bore him children and she stayed in Stratford while he went to London and that in his will, he gave her his second best bed. And that's almost everything we know about Anne Hathaway. Um, and I think we know that she couldn't read or write um, as far as I know, neither could Shakespeare's parents or apparently his kids. Um, interestingly enough, which has caused some to question that Shakespeare, how could he have this incredible literary talent when he, he came from a relatively uneducated 
place uh, and family. But um, Anne Hathaway is, it begins, this, cha- this, this chapter begins by rejecting the idea that an artist's life has anything to do with his work uh, and that the work, in fact, represents the platonic spiritual reality. This is Eglinton's argument. And Stephen then goes off on his, on his um, performance about, no, if you really want to understand Hamlet and Shakespeare as a whole, you need to understand the family relationships that Shakespeare himself was in, and especially the role of usurpation, the role of seduction, the role of, of feeling betrayed and then uh, reconciling. And, uh, and so Anne Hathaway, we don't get a very flattering argument about her from Stephen, but she is central. She is absolutely central to the, the pages and pages of argument um, over Shakespeare here. Let me lay out more specifically what the argument is, because it is picking up Please. on the biographical element that you mentioned, which is that she's older than him. And so Stephen... Uh, or Joyce, by way of Stephen, with his very deep knowledge of Shakespeare, cites the poem Venus and Adonis. Um, and I wanted to read a bit of Venus and Adonis because it's 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 a very funny um, poem. And so he he casts Venus as Anne Hathaway and Adonis as Shakespeare. This is from the introduction. She seetheth on his sweating palm, pluck him from his horse. Over one arm the lusty courses reign, under her other was the tender boy who blushed and pouted in dull disdain with leaden appetite and apt to toy. She, red and hot as coals of glowing fire, he, red for shame, but frosty in desire. So the argument that Stephen essentially makes on page 244 is that uh, Anne Hathaway, the so-called grey-eyed goddess, bends over the boy Adonis, a.k.a. um, Shakespeare, stooping to conquer as prologue to the swelling act, is a bold-faced Stanford wench who tumbles in a cornfield, a a lover younger than herself. So not only does Joyce show his very deep knowledge of Shakespeare, but he's also making making the argument that Anne Hathaway essentially rapes this this younger man who then she takes advantage of and then betrays with Shakespeare's, uh, with his, his brothers. I mean, what's interesting is that, like with Molly, Anne Hathaway in this in this theory that of course Stephen we know he doesn't fully believe in, but um, like like Molly Anne Hathaway is the actor and Shakespeare who of course we think of as one of the great geniuses of all time is kind of the dupe right which doesn't match up with our intuitions um, and I think what we're getting again it's not so much about what we're learning about literary theory as what we're learning about Stephen Stephen's got so much anger about his mother his mother who died and who died trying to make him be something he wasn't trying to get him to pray for her whereas if his mother had really known him and loved him for who he was she wouldn't have asked him to pray for her and and yet as Buck Mulligan points out you know his his aunt thinks you killed your mother because maybe Stephen could have just given her his mother her dying wish which was to hear her son praying he didn't so Stephen is is really is 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 uh is in in the in the pain of this of this terrible guilt and I think that pain and anger comes out in this really very negative um uh you know criticism of of Anne Hathaway but that that, that Anne Hathaway still according to Stephen inspires um, some of the greatest, you know, betrayals and usurpations, including the the one between Gertrude and and uh, and King Hamlet, that uh, uh, that is at the heart of of his maybe greatest play. You put me in mind of um, something that Haynes actually says in Wandering Rocks, where he describes Shakespeare as the happy hunting ground of all minds that have lost their balance, mm. almost as if you know that that is you know it is this turbulence in Stephen's life that attracts him to uh, Hamlet and that makes him sort of generate this theory. 
Yeah. So should we do a, should we do a, a last question here? So we, I wanted to do, um, you know, what do you guys think about, can we separate, what's your opinion as, as writers and, and curators of the arts? Um, uh, can we separate the art from the artist? Uh, and then kind of a, a, a side question, um, you know, these are Irish writers bemoaning the, the, the lack of an Irish epic. Why is there no Irish Hamlet? So whichever one of you wants to take whichever one of those questions. Oh, there are so many points to make here. And I want to point people to three main places to answer this question. Uh, the, the tangential question is what is the role of the artist biography in reading their works? So the first place this comes up is on page 236. Um, and so this is the argument that art has to reveal to us ideas, formless spiritual essences. The supreme question about a work of art is out of how deep a life does it spring. Um, the words of Hamlet bring our mind into contact with the eternal wisdom, Plato's world of ideas. All the rest is speculation of schoolboys for schoolboys. I'm going to jump to 242. This is at the top. So again, thinking about what is the role of biography here, interesting only to the parish clerk or else schoolboys, as aforementioned. I mean, we have the plays. I mean, when we read the poetry of King Lear, what is it to us how the poet lived? As for living, our servants can do that for us. Um, Villiers de Lille has said, peeping and prying into green room gossip of the day, the poet's drinking, the poet's depths. We have King Lear and it is immortal. And finally, on page 265... I'm jumping around here, but it's they all are making a similar point. Um, we have it on high authority that a man's worst enemies shall be those of his own house and family. I feel that Russell is right. What do we care for his wife and father? I should say that only family poets have family lives. Falstaff was not a family man, which is to say that if you get mired in the historical biography, the um, actual artist biography, you're not living the life of the mind you're not living in the realm of platonic ideals does Stephen really believe this does Joyce really believe this can't it be both can't a work of art spring out of deep life and engage with questions of biography I think one answer to this question um, that Joyce provides uh, to us by way of Gifford and this is the opening quote to Gifford's Ulysses annotated and this is Joyce saying of Ulysses, I put in so many enigmas and puzzles that it will keep the professors busy for centuries arguing over what I meant. And that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. So he's aware of speculation. He's aware of the role of biography. He's aware of the role of historicization. And he's possibly using it um, for his own posterity. I think in my experience, there is something there can be something enormously informative about um, discovering the biography of an artist. I mean, one one example that comes to mind is uh, Vincent van Gogh, which mm. for me, I was somebody who didn't have any sort of formal training in the appreciation of the visual arts. And I think van Gogh is one of those artists that you, you're so confronted with his work from a very young age that often it gets kind of deadened to you. Mm. Um and it wasn't until I read his letters to his brother, his letters to Theo, that I felt at least a deep connection. I was almost sort of transcendent connection with his with his work. And suddenly these paintings, which before I, my, my gaze had been kind of glancing off, suddenly became uh, enriched in, in my perception. That said, I think you're also on a bit of a hiding to nothing. Because, for example, if I think of my own work, 
when I read back something I wrote five years ago, ten years ago, I personally can see exactly where that came from Great in my life. Speeding time. These books are available at a bookstore <laughs> near you. The Great Adam Biles. Links in the show notes. Links in um, the show notes. But I, I can see completely where they came from. And yet that is something, it's a kind of, it's from an intellectual life. It's from the story of the mind to which historians of my work, should there ever be any, which I'm not saying there will be, but let's just hypothesize about this. Be. I think that they would have no access to this through the biographical facts of my life. And in fact, the biographical facts which they would have access to would tell them I would contend very, very little about the intellectual and emotional life that produced these books. So while I think as a kind of as an observer, it can be it can feel incredibly informative. Perhaps there will always be a, a barrier to um, to a, a, to a genuinely deep understanding of of the work through biography. I absolutely think though, I mean, there'll always be a barrier, but it goes back to the point that Lex was making about Stephen's rage at Anne Hathaway because of his own trauma, because of because of his mother and his relationship with his mother. And this brings up another question that I had that's also related to this idea of biography, is that do writers only write from their own experiences? And is it possible that they can write from another's experience? And the this episode comes on quite hard although then again Stephen will denounce it but he basically argues that uh that you can't that you are writing within the prism of your own worldview the prism of your own world experience so he says that all events of Shakespeare brought grist to his mill and then later he says every life is many days day after day we walk through ourselves meeting robbers ghosts giants old men young men wives widows brothers in love by always meeting ourselves. So you and and this is a really interesting point I think because isn't the role of art isn't the role of writing to break out of yourself to empathize with other people to empathize with other spirits and in these two points Stephen is basically saying that it's impossible you know you can try and empathize on the page but ultimately you're coming back to your own personal limits. I don't I don't think that's true. I think I don't think those are in opposition. I think that's, that's mm. beautifully well said, but I, I don't think that it's a choice between understanding yourself and empathizing with others. In fact, I think that to the degree to which we understand our own unconscious motivations and biases, um, which reading great literature can help you do, I think, in the way that going to a great therapist can help you do. Um, <laughs> also both, in the show both, notes. Both of which I've done. <laughs> also in the show notes. Um, Paris is a great place for both books and therapists. <laughs> Um, is, is that you understand your own motivations better helps you understand what might be going on in the minds of others. And it, it helps you, a more three-dimensional understanding of your own mind, I think, helps you also apprehend the multidimensionality of other people. I, I, I think that actually one can be a, 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 yes, you can close down and close your regard into, into just your own space. But I, I do think that those can be two journeys that can, that can happen in parallel. It brings me back to that thing that um, we've talked about in previous Bloomcasts about um, that George Saunders said um, when I was speaking to him about his, his book about um, teaching the Russians was that idea that kind of through the process of writing, through the process of drafting and redrafting and redrafting, you access a plane, you access an empathy, you access some sort of humanity outside of yourself and bigger than yourself. And perhaps that's where the two um, potentially oppositional positions that were, were expressed can kind of be seen to overlap. And I think that's really true about Joyce and Bloom, right? That we, we everyone knows if you read Portrait of the Artist and if you read, you know, the first 
uh, Stephen chapters of Ulysses that there's so much of James Joyce's life in Stephen. Everyone knows that, right? Um, you know, down to the Jesuit education, down to the name of his friends, down to the name of his teachers, down to, you know, his relationship with his father, the number of kids in the family, you know, going to Paris. It, all of James Joyce's biography features in some way in Stephen's and not the case in Bloom's, right? Bloom is based on a man he that Joyce knew very, uh, if he's based on anybody at all, some say he's based on this man named Alfred Hunter who uh, helped Joyce when he was, um, you know, had, on a, after a, a drinking spree, uh, was taken advantage of in a park, uh, you know, robbed basically and thrown to the ground. And this this man helped him, and he was uh, he was he was Jewish, and he was a middle you know middle aged man, which thirty eight was in nineteen oh four. Sorry for the two of us, Adam. <laughs> um, and um, but I think the relationship between knowing now more about J- Joyce's biography. And knowing how difficult a guy he was, at least to his family and, and his close friends, um, helps me. Um, I, it, the questions that arise from that, that why did he make Bloom? Why did he make Bloom to be such this this empathetic, uh, science minded, um, you know, charitable, um, questing, lost, you know, multidimensional um, person? Why did Joyce come up needed to come up with this character, and what was his relationship? And this is why I asked that very funny question. I think in the first Bloom cast, you know, is 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 Bloom a better man than Joyce? And in a sense, do authors create characters who um, are better than they are, or who who achieve things that the authors can't? Um, so I think there's there is some 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 interesting um, territory in that question. And speaking of creating characters, we might ask the question: Why has there been no Irish Hamlet? And 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 an added question is: Is it actually possible to create Hamlet within the Irish tradition of epics? I mean, I suppose what the the first question in response to that question is: What does one mean by an Irish Hamlet? Um, I mean, the source of that question obviously comes from uh, from this conversation. And to me, when I was reading it, it felt like Joyce was essentially seeding uh, the idea that Ulysses was filling that gap, in fact. Um, and so uh, up until this point, the the Irish Odyssey, the Irish Hamlet had not existed, and Ulysses is is plugging that. It comes back to that point you were making, Alice, about the, um, you know, keeping the professors busy for, um, for centuries. Joyce was very sort of unabashed about the fact that he was essentially, you know, writing uh, a book that we would be written for centuries and that would be would essentially redefine the canon. This is such a great point and I think it's one that's that ought to be hi- highlighted which is that we're talking about two separate things here. At one point in this episode John Eglinton bemoans the fact um that our young Irish bards have yet to create a figure which the world will set beside Saxon's Shakespeare's Hamlet and then later um Stephen bemoans the fact that our Irish uh, national epic has yet to be written but how do you reconcile these two things national epic on the one hand and um, and kind of Saxon Shakespeare's Hamlet on the other and so does does one write at once a national epic and create an Irish Hamlet um, how does one reconcile the character of a solitary cerebral brooding Hamlet with the epic is that possible and and as you say Adam and as I think we might agree that that Ulysses is trying to do this, and it's it's a brilliant, uh, masterful uh, <laughs> attempt. <laughs> essay, essay, yes, essay. essay, essay in the in the in the French and old English way. No, I mean there there is there's so much that Joyce is trying to both build and and deconstruct right in in Ulysses yeah. and. 
um, you know, if the epic is the is the form of of literature about heroes and striving, and the novel is the form about uh, more interior about social social mores and and social classes, um, and Hamlet is to some degree uh, uh, Shakespeare also taking apart the the epic because Hamlet is the epic hero who basically does nothing over the course of the of the play, um, and uh, and is is the most most interior of of all of all Shakespeare's plays. Joyce is I think saying that that if we're going to bake a national epic, it's going to look different than any other epic, right? It's going to look different than any um, than the than the Welsh version, than the Peruvian version, and the Chinese version. And it's not going to be in fucking Irish. And it's not going to be in Irish either. <laughs> um, and I think that there was a response to this movement of you know Lady Gregory and Yeats of uh, trying to you know the Irish nationalist movement in literature trying to restore the 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 legends of the past. And I think Joyce. He, I think he thinks that's a mistake. I think he he has to he he wants the Irish national uh, book to be about Ireland's present, not just living in the past. Because I think he he thinks that that trying to resuscitate a dead past is um, is is a, is a dead end. Whereas um, whereas I think uh, trying to create a book that's about a community, a living buzzing community, and this is a nice transition to to Wandering Rocks, is a way of making the community the hero. Uh, and I think that's an act of of literary bravery and and innovation that um, that does make Ulysses um, one of the greatest books, not only in Ireland but but anywhere. Before we we move on, should we do noticeable? Yes, absolutely. Um, who would like to start? I have one, um, and this is a this is a Beckettian noticeable. If there are any Beckettians who are listening, please do uh, get in touch because I will represent William James. Ulysses at shakespeareandcompany.com <laughs> or McCrum at American Library. Uh, in Paris.org. So, uh, on on this debate, essentially of, of of Plato and Aristotle, I think Beckett takes a very hard line, and this is one of my favourite quotes um, about Beckett, by way of the playwright Harold Pinter, um, who wrote, who called Beckett the most courageous, remorseless writer going. He writes, "I don't want philosophies, tracts, dogmas, creeds, wayouts, truths, answers. Nothing from the bargain basement." Beckett is not fucking me about, he added, not leading me up any garden. Indeed, the more he grinds my nose in the shit, the more I am grateful to him, Beckett said. He hasn't got his hand over his heart and he leaves no stone unturned and no maggot lonely. If there's anything less Aristotelian, I don't know. And Alice, thanks to yours and Pinter's potty mouth, I'm now going to have to um, flag this podcast as explicit um, <laughs> when I when I yeah. upload it. Boy, if if, uh, for, if our listeners only knew how much Alice swears, you know, before and after. I mean, it's really I, I have to wash my mouth out with soap. Um, I have a couple of quick noticeables. Um, one coming back to this idea of um, Schiller and Charybdis, the push and pull. Um, one thing that comes up quite a lot in this chapter is Paris. Um, and so there are references to Paris streets. There's references to Rue Saint-André des Arts, which is not far from the bookstore. There's reference to uh, Rue Monsieur Le Prince, which is also not far from the bookstore and which was very close to Sylvia Beach's um, Shakespeare and Company. Talk about biography. (laughs) And um, it just suddenly struck me that one thing that's going on here, which is sort of a, a parallel push and pull, is that obviously Stephen, as we've already discovered, was being had abandoned his life in Paris to come back to Dublin. So Stephen exists in this kind of, between almost this kind of skiller of Dublin and the Caribdis mm. of Paris. And I think this will become important when we come in to speak about Wandering Rocks. And of course, Joyce was a reverse, in fact, to an extent. Joyce was writing this book about Dublin from Paris. So he was being drawn back to Dublin from the city, well, Paris and Zurich, but, you know, Paris was one of his... Um, 
one of his Pierre Terre. And so we, he had this sort of this parallel and opposite push and pull to, um, to Stephen. So this idea of Joyce being pulled back to, to Dublin to write, to write Ulysses, this, this kind of returned to my mind uh, in something that actually Stephen says about Shakespeare in, um, in Schiller and Charybdis. He returns after a life of absence to that spot of earth where he was born, where he has always been man and boy, a silent witness, and there his journey of life ended. He plants his mulberry tree in the earth, then dies. The motion is ended. Um, and the thing that just occurred to me is, you know, we talked in, pre in previous Bloomcasts about, um, about the Odyssey and potentially Ulysses being a journey home. But is there a sense that, you know, it's not just a journey home for Stephen and not just a journey home for Bloom, but also a journey home for Joyce? And if so, is Ulysses Joyce planting his mulberry tree? Um, a couple of other noticeables which I thought um, are more kind of flagging up for um, future reference. Connected to this idea of art and artist, um, there's a line which is a very famous line from Ulysses. A man of genius makes no mistakes, his errors are volitional and the portals of discovery. Now this is something which I think particularly as we uh, progress through the book and certainly when we come to the moment later on where Bloom tallies up his expenses for the day, the idea of errors being volitional whether conscious or consciously or unconsciously uh, is a huge uh, conversation to be had and hopefully one will find time for um, in another Bloomcast and my final noticeable which comes directly from Patrick Hastings and if you want more about uh, this particular figure um, Patrick talks a lot about him and says in the conversation that we had actually that maybe he talks about him more than a lot of uh, other Joyce scholars is this figure of the arranger now at a moment in this um, in Schiller and Charybdis you'll see that the uh, the text descends into iambic pentameter and then out of nowhere you have a whoa now who is that whoa attributed to now according to Hastings and seemingly uh, a lot of Joyce scholarship that is attributed to this mysterious figure of the arranger who sits alongside the narrator as one of the creative forces shaping the narrative of Ulysses. Now, again, it's a huge discussion, which Patrick goes into exquisitely in his book. And so I recommend you go, go and check it out. But certainly he identifies this as in a moment at which the arranger is kind of holding back Joyce. Joyce is or holding back the narrator who wants to go into this kind of formally very flowery, flowery and experimental um, manner, manner of writing and the arranger just pulls him oh, back a little bit. So interesting. I'd love to hear more about the arranger in episodes to come. Well, my only notice, thank you. My only noticeable was picking up exactly on that, on that line um, from, from Stephen where um, Eglinton says, oh, well, maybe Shakespeare uh, made a mistake in marrying this older Anne Hathaway, and Stephen says immediately, "No, all men of genius, uh, men, men of genius, make no mistakes. Their errors are volitional and are the portals of their discovery." That was the only line that from the, my first reading of Ulysses that that stuck in in my head um, for years after, because I found every time I would make a a very serious mistake, um, I would go back to this line and sort of maybe maybe it's a portal of discovery, not a terrible, terrible uh, error. And in fact, the, the greatest mistake I probably ever made in my whole life, um, dear listeners, uh, was the night of February 23rd, uh, 2004, when I stupidly getting out of my car in Washington, D.C., um, uh, the emergency brake failed. I got uh, 
I made the mistake of going behind the car to try to slow it down and uh, broke my leg very badly against the uh, fence of the Russian embassy, um, and uh, of which more will be said. And uh, and spent the next three months in 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 the, between the hospital and bed. And uh, one of the the results of that was getting a lot of time to read. And I uh, reread uh, Ulysses, and uh, in preparation for uh, a, a challenge from my dad, which was to if I if I did my physical therapy and got better, he would take me to Europe. Um, he had a conference in Sweden in June 2004, and he took me with him. Uh, and I that's how I got to go to Dublin uh, in June 16, 2004. So in that particular case, the worst thing I ever did in my life from a from an error perspective was the portal of of discovery. And you are nothing if not a man of genius, Lex oh, Paulson. No, no, no. <laughs> just just reliving literature, like all you may say all so. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely way to transition to episode 10, Wandering Rocks, which I believe, Adam, you have the honour of summarising. Well, I am going to uh, give you a very, very, very breathless um, uh, summary of Wandering Rocks. Au bout de souffle. Because there is a lot going on, um, so I'm going to trip through it as quickly as possible. So um, as my friend Patrick Hastings writes, uh, just as Joyce has sought to depict in detail and with fidelity the inner workings of Stephen and Mr. Bloom, he was painstaking in his efforts to accurately present the city of Dublin, of more of which later. So in Wandering Rocks, Joyce presents 18 vignettes of Dublin life, 18, mark that number, all of which take place between 2.55 and 4pm. But of course, this is Joyce, so that's certainly not all that's going on. Indeed, Wandering Rocks is actually constructed as a kind of four-dimensional Venn diagram with, people's I- with people, events and even noises from one episode cropping up in others. So while I'm now going to rattle through the events of each discrete section, it might be useful to bear in mind that the only way to really appreciate Wandering Rocks is to read or indeed listen to it. But here we go. <clears throat> In episode one, we meet, or for readers of Portrait of an Artist, meet again a strolling father, Conmee, the rector of Clongos, reflecting on a letter from Martin Cunningham, who's trying to secure a school place for Paddy Dignam's child. He blesses a begging amputee sailor, meets other locals and boards a tram, so he doesn't have to walk through a down-and-out part of town. He descends the tram, laments how priests have descended in public esteem, and goes about his day. Episode two takes place in O'Neill's funeral home, where Corny Kelleher is totting up his figures for the day when he's visited by a police constable. We hear the beginning of their conversation, which makes oblique reference to a certain party. While in episode three, our begging amputee makes his way through the streets, singing a patriotic song. From a window at 7 Eccles Street, ring any bells, a plump, bare, generous arm tosses a coin from the window. In episode four, the Daedalus sisters Katie and Booty return home after failing to pawn Stephen's books to buy food. Booty curses Simon, their father... Episode 6, Stephen bumps into his Italian teacher. They chat warmly in Italian until his teacher realises he's missed his tram. Episode 7, Miss Dunn, Boylan's secretary, is reading a romance novel. She then types out the date on her typewriter. Yes, indeed, June the 16th, 1904, the first time this is confirmed in the book. The phone rings. It's Boylan making the call we saw him make earlier. He wants her to book tickets for two from Belfast to Liverpool. Episode 8 occurs in the Seed and Grain Warehouse where Ned Lambert works. Ned is showing the building to the priest, Hugh C. Love, when J.J. Malloy comes in. Malloy has come to ask for money, which is no surprise to Lambert, or us if we've been paying attention. In episode 9, Tom Rochford, Nosy Flynn, Lenaham and McCoy discuss Rochford's latest invention, seemingly something to display the name of a musical act as they take to the stage. They see Mr Bloom perusing books. This gives rise to a story about a dinner Lenaham spent with Bloom, and particularly Molly, who Lenaham spent the evening trying to feel up. In episode 10, we encounter... Trying and succeeding in <laughs> feeling up Molly Bloom. In episode 10... 
we encounter Bloom shopping for Molly's next book while the bookseller spits a wad of phlegm to the ground. And in episode 11, Dilly Dedalus finally runs into her father, Simon, and begs money off him. Simon gives her a shilling before describing his daughters as an insolent pack of little bitches since their mother died. In episode 12, we meet Tom Kernan leaving a pub after a, quote, thimbleful of gin. Then in episode 13, Stephen runs into Dilly at a book stand when she has just spent half that very same shilling on a book to learn French. Stephen is torn up by guilt, which he associates with the agonbite of Inuit, misery, misery. Episode 4 sees Simon Daedalus, Father Cowley and Ben Dollar discuss their various debts, while in episode 15 we accompany Martin Cunningham as he makes arrangements and a collection for Dignam's family. Bloom has contributed five shillings. In episode 16, Buck Mulligan and Haynes have stopped for a snack at the DBC, Dublin Bread Company. They discuss Stephen's lecture and how the Jesuits put the fear of God, or more specifically fear of hell, into him. Buck says he thinks Stephen will write something in 10 years' time, meaning 1914, which, as Patrick Hastings points out, was the year Dubliners was published, Portrait began its serialisation, and Joyce began writing Ulysses. And the world went to war. (laughs) But not over those books, I will add. Episode 17 seems... Episode 17 sees Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tistle Farrell charging insolently through the city, while the 18th episode sees young Patrick Dignam cross paths with Blazes Boylan and Bob Doran and reflect on the obviousness of his mourning clothes as well as the strange finality of his father's death. The chapter closes with a wide shot of the viceregal cavalcade seen repeatedly throughout this section, watched by a mere 48 of the novel's characters, including the mysterious man in the brown Macintosh and a few others we are yet to meet. Let's Bravo. pour me another whiskey. Well done. Bravo, well done. Adam Biles. Bravura. <laughs> I want Adam to do all of the summaries. Mm, Love Adam's goodness. summaries. I refuse. <laughs> so this Je is refuse. so this is this is a chapter that um, you could breeze over. Wandering rocks. Um, it's a little. It's a series of vignettes. Um, they're pretty funny. They're very easy to read in comparison to making your way through the mystery of Anne Hathaway and Hamlet. Um, Wander is super fun, but you might just kind of skim over it. I, I reread it uh, this time around and found it to be one of my favorite uh, and definitely in my top three favorite uh, chapters in the book. And um, and I think it's it's this cinematic effect of of seeing more than one um, yeah. event from more than one angle, mm. uh, one after the other in this very, it's almost like you are uh, following a, a movie camera that's darting in and out, you know, the wide angle shot of the city and then zooming down in one place and another. And it's 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 kind of exhilarating to be honest. And and Joyce, he makes this a, a, one of the most fun chapters to read, I think. So might that answer, begin to answer the question that we wanted to pose is why do these little stories matter? Well, Adam, you 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 talked about the the way this this chapter was written. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean you're talking about the the cinematic element to it, and I think that's something which is, from a formal perspective, difficult to execute anyway. Um, but one thing that um, you find out when you start digging into it is that not only is this one a wonderful thing to read, it actually can be mapped pretty effectively onto the Dublin streets. So what do I mean by that? Well. If you follow the trajectories of the characters, the amount of time it takes one character to move from one spot of the city to another spot of the city, where they cross paths with another character, all of which was impeccably timed by Joyce. It's said that he wrote this chapter with a map of Dublin in front of him. Title charts, too. Yeah, and indeed, Joyce said, and, you know, um, it has been noted somewhat hyperbolically that if Dublin was destroyed, it could be rebuilt from uh, from Ulysses. Um, so <laughs> but I mean, 
it is annoying. And yet at the same time, the research is certainly there. And I think the one thing that really demonstrates that is um, something that Clive Hart notes, which is that his attention to detail stretches all the way to throw away Elijah, the piece of paper that uh, Mr. Bloom threw into the Liffey in Lestragonians. Now, seemingly, the moments that that appears throughout Wandering Rocks matches perfectly the probable rate of flow of the Liffey two and a half hours after high tide on that June day. So this is not just something beautiful and cinematic, um, which once you once you actually piece it together doesn't quite work. So, for example, some of the um, scenes from Céline when he's sort of uh, tramping around Paris, uh, the times that it takes him to get to, from one part of Paris to another are completely off. You know, you couldn't do this. And that works within Céline's universe. But Joyce's universe is meticulously and down and plotted down to the last yeah you compare another great paris uh paris movie is um that begins in this bookshop is uh before sunset um which in which uh ethan hawk and, and julie delpy meet in shakespeare and company at an event held by someone who's not the owner of the, not the owner of shakespeare company in real life and then they proceed to uh move very long distances across paris um to, uh in in a very in a very short and casual stroll um so like other paris movies it's it's a fantasy whereas this one is is um is cinematic as you say adam in a, in a much more realistic and 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 precise way. So I think one of the answers to the question um, that Alice asked, why does this matter? Like, why, why is Joyce doing this? What does this have to do with the, 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 his goal of creating a, a national epic for, uh, for Ireland? Well, so I think we can see Joyce writing this at the beginning of a century dominated by cities and that cities were fundamentally disrupting how people lived. This was the first century in all of human history where a majority of humanity lived in cities. And uh, and so uh, many different schools of thought of artists as well as writers were grappling with uh, the effect of cities on us, um, you know, whether they drive us to suicide, uh, whether um, they uh, uh, represent a, a deep corruption, you know, of of human society and alienation, uh, etc. And Ezra Pound, uh, another resident of Paris and um, uh, great writer and champion of James Joyce's, he has a famous haiku that he wrote um, in Paris called "In a Station of the Metro," which goes as follows: "The apparition." of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. And um, you, you have in this, in this short and, and lovely haiku, um, a sense of the dehumanization that you, you, you blend, all these faces blend together and they just give you this, this, this thought of, a, of, of an image as opposed to encounters with, with real people. Um, Frank Budgen, um, who was a great artist uh, who was a, and friend of Joyce's, writes about the futurists and the the there was another great movement coming in this time Joyce is writing Ulysses the Italian futurists who are are very uh, enlivened enthusiastic about the rise of machines and that machines represent this this better uh, form of being um, and you have the surrealists also who are taking taking shape around this time who uh, are, are rejecting the conventions of society and and the social order through kinds of automatic writing and stream of consciousness etc and I think what we see here is Joyce is actually 
taking the side of another movement from this era, which is the Cubist movement, um, showing us the same objects from multiple sides simultaneously, as Picasso and Brock do in, in, in their famous paintings, written basically around, uh, I mean, the paintings were painted right around the time that this action of the book takes place, 1905, 1906, 1907. And, um, and that in this sense, Joyce is showing um, something very interesting and even miraculous about a community that is both individual and collective and that is interdependent in ways that the individuals aren't aware of in the way that in our brain, you know, our neurons don't know about each other, but they are working together uh, in circuits that produce a, a collective consciousness. And so I, I think there's something almost miraculous about Wandering Rocks and the way that it traces all of these hidden lines between the people of this uh, community. And, and there's something that emerges that's greater, greater than the sum of the parts. Well, this this gets to a point that uh, Colleen made. So this is Terence Colleen. We, we posted we'll post to him in the show notes. So he writes of Wandering Rocks. In Wandering Rocks, no character is more or less important than any other. Even Bloom and Stephen take their place among the others. In that sense, this is a very democratic episode. You might like that. Lex, the plight of Master Patrick Iolus Dignum receives as much attention as that of Stephen Dedalus. One effect of the interpolations is to destabilize each section's ostensible narrative, to draw our attention away from it, to frustrate narrative flow, and to insist on the equal primacy of something happening somewhere else. Where then is a center in this episode? There is none. And this is something that, of course, is going to develop over the course of the 20th century, this idea of a fixed center, this idea of the emergence of postmodernism, and then there's no, the idea that there's no there there. And how ironic that this narrative, as you just said, that has no center, is literally the central episode of Ulysses. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's also something else going on, um, which feeds into Colleen's point, um, which f comes back to the question, why do these little stories matter? I would actually put it another way and say, are these little stories or are they cogs in the bigger mechanism of the story itself? And I think, you know, they may be smaller cogs than... Telemachus, Proteus, Calypso. And yet they are driving, they're all part of the same mechanism, they're all keeping it going. And I think there's there's definitely some sort of, again, I think that word democratic um, was really important. I think there's, um, these are not, I think it would be a mistake to look at these as discrete, independent sort of vignettes, which we exactly. can sort of dispose which of. Which is easy to do if you just read it straight away. You, you can miss this thing about the, the blind stripling who then we see with Bloom later or the or Molly tossing the coin, which is seen from, from different angles or the way the carriage goes through the city. You, you can miss it. You can miss it if you're not. If you're not I think different. you can miss it. And I think that there's something about looking at these different vignettes from different angles. And I think Cubanism is a very useful rubric to this point because there are, of course, common features. So, you know, when you look at the, the, the painting of Shakespeare's guitar, there, there are there are strings in the same way that all of us might see strings, but um, there are other things that one that I might notice in in the Cubist rendition of the guitar that Lex might not, or Adam might uh, notice another feature. And so I wanted to make this point on the level of language um, with the repetition on the vignette of the soubrette. This, so this comes on the f first comes on um, page two nine four. So uh, I'll just read it. Then she, she stared at the large poster of Marie Kendall, charming soubrette, and listlessly lolling, scribbled on the jotter, 16s and capital S's, S's mustard hair and dauby cheeks. Nice looking, is she? Uh, the way she is holding up a bit of her skirt. And so then we get a similar repetition on this idea of the soubrette four pages later on 298. 
they passed Dan Lowy's musicale, where Marie Kendall, charming soubrette, smiled on them from a poster, a Dolby smile. So we can see that there are recurring themes. There's the, the charming soubrette, there's this idea of the smile, but um, she she's Marie Kendall, who's a totally, I think, throwaway character. You'll tell me if I'm wrong. Does she come back? Uh, I don't think so, but I think, I okay. think you're absolutely but right. Do you see, but do you, what's yeah. really interesting is is the repetition of these two phrases. So there's something about there's something about the air in Dublin at this time that Charming Soubrette is in people's consciousnesses, and yet Charming Soubrette takes two different kind of reifications and forms in, in these two moments. I think it's fascinating. The, the same thing happens with, with the white arm throwing coins and the th- same thing happens with the lovers emerging from the bush where she reach where she reaches and, and and pulls up her skirt slightly to yeah. adjust herself exactly right she comes right. off the poster into the into the real action of the city i'd also like to flag up your use of the word throwaway alice uh bearing in mind the throwaway is of course a, a reference to the um to the horse which the which horse, yeah. of course and i made on purpose which of course you made on purpose well you know the genius does not make any mistakes no, exactly um right. but also it comes back to this idea that you know you know i don't you know, there's no throwaway characters in Ulysses, and even you could say I think the mo- what, what's the char- what's the character in a moment for you guys that that is the most poignant in this chapter, and maybe one of the most poignant in the whole book. Well, you clearly haven't answered that question. I, 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 I think there's one that just jumps. There off is the definitely page. a right or wrong answer, isn't I, I, well, it? Well, to, to, to me, to me, I I don't see how anyone who read that moment between Stephen and his sister, and his sister who is you know who is is in poverty. And yet spends half of what, you know, the father, her father gives him and buys a French primer because she, like Stephen, sees that there's a bigger world out there and wants to be part of that world. Even though she spends her days boiling shirts and eating pea soup, she sees there's a big, I mean... Sounds like have, it sounds like my life as a student. <laughs> sounds like my life as a student. Come live in Paris. You have the glamour of of pea soup. Um, but the 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 that moment with Dilly, Dilly, I think you know, just in those mm. two pages is as fully drawn a character as as. Uh, is it moving? Is it tragic? Both, absolutely, fully both. And you get the agonbite of Inwood again. So you also are learning about Stephen, in his response to to, to Dilly, who on the one he he doesn't help her. Even Simon Dedalus, the, the drunk and the absentee father, gives her some money, whereas Stephen, who had just been paid that day, has money in his pocket, doesn't, mm-hmm. and and then knows he's an asshole, yeah. right? And that's why the inwit, that's why his conscience, the inwit, is, is biting him again, is that um, he, on the one hand, um, knows that he is neglecting his duties. On the other hand, I think all of us have had that experience of seeing a family a dysfunctional part of your family that you're like god i could i could spend all of my energy just trying to fix my family right or i could escape right and live my own life and and steven is clearly choosing to try to escape uh, the duties of his family but he knows he's an asshole for doing it can we come back to um the idea of the city that you raised earlier lex because um when i was when i was reading around this chapter and looking at joyce's um schema for 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 this chapter so to remind our um to remind our listeners joyce not only when when he uh was explaining in a sense uh ulysses to to some of his friends in letters he put together a schema which involves what did he put it together and this is something i was never quite clear on i thought it was someone who put it together and then he kind of blessed it listeners correct us listeners, listeners correct week. us yeah. is, is the schema joyce's or did joyce sort of give us imprimatur on it but anyway i, I believe schema. it's joyce's but anyway so we have includes episode time scene color technique correspondences science art meaning organ and symbols 
Uh, you notice that organ is really is the one that Adam keeps coming back to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the organ for Wandering Rocks is blood. Uh, but the one I actually want to come back to is meaning. And what we have here is hostile environment. Um, and this comes back to the idea of cities, I think, because I don't think necessarily readers will read Wandering Rocks and come away with the idea of Dublin in 1904 as a hostile environment. Um, or not sort of, or not explicitly anyway. Um, and so I'm just very curious about what you both think this is referring to in in the chapter. I have my own thoughts, but I'd like to I'd like to put you on the spot first. I don't know that I have necessarily a direct answer to that question. What I would say is, and what I was thinking about during this discussion is that a nice counterpoint for anyone who's read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, I think Raskolnikov in Saint Petersburg. Is, is a counterpoint um, to this discussion of a protagonist in a city because, um, you know, he is very much in a hostile environment. And this goes to the point that Lex was making about what does the city do not only to us on a psychological level, on a physical level as an individual, but also in our relationships with our peers, in our relationships um, with our employers, in our relationships with our landlords or people with whom we live in buildings or live for not so long until we murder them with axes mm. um, it happens it happens <laughs> it happens you move to the city <laughs> um, you see a nice axe <laughs> you sort of say who do i want to kill with this axe <laughs> just as a quick aside and as a bit of cross promotion uh, the recent episode of the shakespeare and company podcast was with kevin birmingham his book about wow. dostoevsky and crime and punishment kevin birmingham who also wrote the most dangerous this book, book um about the uh about about james joyce and ulysses it's very interesting i think that was his first book was yeah yeah, yeah. This is a second, yeah. so he goes from Joyce all, to Dostoevsky. All, all of that is to say that if you if you have read Crime and Punishment, it's worth keeping Saint Petersburg. We talked about Dublin as a character in this in this in this novel epic. Um, keep Saint Petersburg in mind as a counterpoint because I think it provides interesting relief and comparison. But I think it's also important to um, when we're talking about cities to talk about which city because, um, as I said in the uh, previous section. For Joyce, we essentially have Dublin and Paris. Now, I looked up populations for Dublin and Paris in 1904. And so Dublin, well, Paris had a population of 2.7 million. Dublin had a population of 300,000. Now, to me, this is make, creating a fundamentally different city, a different environment. And in a sense, I think the dynamics that were potentially at work in cities, I don't know what St. Petersburg would have been as an equivalent, but I think they're going to be fundamentally different between Paris and Dublin. And I think a lot of the things which are often presented as perhaps a negative uh, effect of the city would probably apply more to Paris than to Dublin, this kind of anonymity, this kind of you know being absorbed into the masses. And I do wonder if Joyce is seeing Dublin as a hostile environment, perhaps actually these things of you know, this kind of this anonymity of the city is something that might have appealed to Joyce. Um, and it put me in mind of the a book uh, by John Ronson, actually, the journalist. Um, so you've been publicly shamed in which he talks about the public shaming being a thing which took place in villages and small towns and on Twitter. And when well quite and but then when we became a city dwelling species it was something which was unsustainable and was essentially meaningless because you could become anonymous in a city and so i'm wondering with wandering rocks whether the dublin that joyce was writing about was still small enough to be potentially a sort of an arena for 
shame, humiliation, and that sort of level of not necessarily intimate knowledge, but level level of knowledge of the people you share the city with, which maybe Stephen and perhaps Joyce were were trying to escape. In other words, I think to push the point that I was making about Raskolnikov a, a bit further, the suffo- the physical suffocation that he feels in the city of St. Petersburg one may feel by the kind of intellectual and social suffocation of of being in Dublin at the turn of the century. Right. Yeah. 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 I think. I think. I. C- I can maybe take this with a little help from Declan Kyber. Take. Take. Take this idea. A little help from my friends. Thank you, Declan. Always there for me. Um. Uh, take this idea of a hostile environment. I. I totally. I think what you're saying is is is. Uh, it rings. It rings true, Adam. Um. Uh. About about the city and about the the changing nature of kind of morality and responsibility as the city grows. I, I think that that Kyber to it makes a point very contrary to mine. If I'm if my point is about the kind of the miracle of the city as an organism, which we see in Wandering Rocks, all these different indiv- invisible interdependencies. Um, Kyber makes a much more political point about hostility here. That that you know what is a common a common theme? If this is an organism, if this if this city of Dublin in 1904 is an organism, it's an organism under stress. And what is that stress? It's the stress of poverty and debt and economic pressure and political pressure that Dublin is a colonial city it's been colonized and so we have you know the the twin forces the ruling forces of the city are on either end of this chapter the the forces of Christ and Caesar right the 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 representative of Christ in Father Conmy and the representative of Caesar in in the viceroy the Earl of Dudley um, interestingly, the 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 British, you know, imperial imperial representative, uh, the Earl of Dudley, is given no inner life at all. I mean, it's basically a totally flat um, type, you know. Of uh, but he's everywhere. Everyone sees him, and yet no one um, knows him. And 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 he seems like he's just passing through. Uh, whereas Conmy has an inner life and is is more sympathetically drawn, but also. Um, you know, he doesn't give money to the guy asking for money, uh, and he, we know that he has some money in his pocket. Uh, so there's, I think, a little bit of a criticism about the role of the Irish Church as well as the role of the British Empire in creating the stress, creating this. 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 The. the there's poverty everywhere. Um, there's exclusion, a sense of social and economic exclusion everywhere. Um, and so, you know, you have if you have this emergent consciousness, you also have uh, an emergent consciousness of injustice and how how the city is being mistreated by those who rule it. Um, And of course, Joyce is writing from the perspective of um, the 19-teens after the Easter Rising, which was a key moment in in the path to the foundation of the Irish Republic. and which had not taken place in this novel, but you, but anyone who was reading Ulysses in the 30s or 40s could look back and know that this was the last days of the British Empire ruling Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and so, Kybird's you know thesis about stress uh, and, he, and and how the community responds by being in the streets is a movie, is a, a, a a chapter about being in public, occupying the public space with these eccentric individuals, but also you know the the presence of the of of the theater, of the museum, of the library of the maternity hospital, of the journalists at the, in the newspaper, of these public institutions that are breathing life into a city that's being oppressed from, from outside. Um, so uh, I think that there's, uh, yeah, I think, I think, you know, the heroic protagonist is, is still the community, but it's a heroic protagonist with a, with a battle to fight. Uh, and uh, and just to, to tie it back to your point, Adam, you know, it, it is a, a polis, right? And this is, you know, a, a Greek-inspired story um, of the Greek epic at the point where the polis was just being founded. The 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 form of human 
coexistence that would give us democracy in its earliest form. And um, that still today we see that cities are, are thriving where nation states are failing, um, that the most uh, exciting things happening in the world of democracy today, like you see in Paris, the you know, participatory budgeting and citizen consultations and citizens assemblies uh, are being taken very seriously by cities and regions and are reinventing um, you know, human politics uh, just as the politics of, of nations and empires um, are, are grinding in, in, into, um, into uh, uh, obsolescence. I think uh, a final point that I would make to add on to this question of whether or not Dublin is a hostile environment, to what extent does reading Ulysses uh, also feel like entering into a hostile environment? And I would like to draw on a little help from my friend, Merve Emmerer, who in the February edition of The New Yorker, so Emra is a uh, professor at Oxford and also a critic, and she wrote a fantastic article called The Seduction of Ulysses, and she cites the critic Leo Bassani, who writes that this, the anxiety which Ulysses massively encyclopedically struggles to transcend is that of disconnectedness, which one might say that the, the challenge of being in a city is to struggle the the to transcend the um, struggle of disconnectedness. He adds, the traumatic seductions of desiring to read all one would have to read to master these references. How many people have read not just Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, Stern, Fielding, Blake, Goethe, Wilde and Yeats, but also Irish, Indian and Jewish folklore? How many are proficient in French, German, Spanish, Hebrew, Greek and Latin? Whom do you share these connections with? It's the same feeling I think of, of being in a page with all of these references and all of these languages and all of these traditions that one might find oneself kind of in Saint Germain de Pre or, or uh, cent, you know, Central um, Central Park. What's, what's like a big thing in New York? <laughs> Times Square. <laughs> Times Square. <laughs> For Central Park to Times Square, frankly, everything's big in New York. In other words, yeah. Do you, the the point is, all of these references are kind of you feel as subsumed by all of these references on the page as you might in a big crowd in any given mm. city. That's good. I'm really, yeah. I'm really good. Mm. And I think a really good one to finish it on. Do we yes. have any noticeables I, before I we couple, head off? I have just have a couple. Do you, uh, should, should, should I chop in? I've got none, so you go for it. Okay, thanks. cool. So the, the, the midpoint of the entire novel, uh, the entire novel of Ulysses happens made in it, this novel. You've made it halfway You've made it halfway, through. everybody. No, you've made it halfway episode-wise, Epis- not, not page-wise, before you start getting excited. <laughs> Wait, you have to yeah. celebrate the small wins here. <laughs> yeah. You're about a third of the way, uh, page-wise. Yes, if they're reading-wise. But, but, um, but uh, dear reader, have no fear, because some of the greatest delights of Ulysses are, are just just around the corner. Um, so at, at the very midpoint of this book, of this episode, which is the midpoint of the entire book, um, is the bit of Lenahan and McCoy of uh, talking about the the carriage the night in the carriage with Molly Bloom as he's talking as Bloom is talking about the stars uh Lenahan is you know secretly making a move on on Molly um and and then there's this great the great line there're actually some of these lines that, that are appreciative of Bloom you know t- there's a touch of the artist about Bloom um John Wise Nolan and Martin Cunningham shortly thereafter as they see Bloom you know they uh, he asks them uh Wise Nolan asks Cunningham about Patty Dignam's um charity fund you know for Dignam's family and and he says, yes, the bloom, you know, put put in five shillings right away. Oh, yes, there's much kindness in the Jew. So that that there's a sense in which these real life Dubliners, so some of whom were, were, were real people, um, you know, they they uh, don't accept Bloom. And yet they're constantly thinking about him. Um, and, and that this is, I think, Joyce's great gift of a character who is, a, in a sense, more real than any of the real people um, in the book. Uh, he's he's fictional, but he's on everyone's minds um, uh, all the time. Yeah. 
looking looking in the shadows um do you have a noticeable because I, I have one more but i'll pass it to you okay so here's so here's my here's here are my last, I my last two. To your well i'm noticing things so i'm gonna keep <laughs> noticing so two 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 last ones so the handbill we talked about that says elijah is coming this is a um a, a little advertisement that you get walking through the streets people put you know um put pieces of paper in your hand um uh, uh, a great um, a comedian once said, it, "It's it's like they're saying here, you throw this away." Um, and uh, and so the hand pill that says Elijah is coming. Of course, Elijah, the great Hebrew prophet. This handbill has seems to have nothing meaningful in it. He Bloom literally throws it away uh, before making his prophecy, his unwitting prophecy of who's going to win the uh, the horse race. And we see this little you know this little piece of trash moving down the river. Um, perfectly timed. Perfectly timed. Um, and then we find out later, and this is the, a little bit of a teaser, uh, that this this actually is um, a calling for uh, a, or announcing um, a, a prophecy, and that Bloom will later in the book um, reveal something very very meaningful about this seemingly meaningless phrase, uh, Elijah, Elijah is coming. Um, so keep, keep, uh, keep reading uh, and, you'll, and you'll, you'll get to the, the doorstep of the new blue Muslim. Um, and f- so finally, the last thing, and again, I'll, I'll just I'll keep throwing flowers on Professor Kybert. Um, he notices uh, Parnell's brother, Parnell, the, Charles uh, Parnell, the great hero of Irish nationalism who is disgraced uh, and dies. And his brother, John Howard Parnell, is um, spotted in this chapter playing chess as the viceroy the representative of the british empire goes by in his carriage uh uh, Parnell's brother is is regarding earnestly his chessboard, and so Kyber points out that that um, this is also a kind of a chess match. This chapter that you have the bishop moving diagonally, you have the representative of the king who is you know being protected in his carriage. Uh, he's the only one who's is in a protected form of transportation, and then you have all the pawns who in a, in a chess game you know are the least powerful individually, but who um, who collectively uh, can make quite a bit of difference to the outcome of of a chess match. And then of course it finishes. Uh, the whole chapter finishes with the salute of Stephen's um, uh, opera teacher, Artifoni, uh, the salute of Artifoni's trousers swallowed by a closing door, uh, which you could look at as uh, Dublin bidding bye-bye uh, soon to the to the British Empire that has ruled them. Wow. And on that note of bye-bye. <laughs> yes, indeed. So we'll join you in two weeks' time for Sirens and Cyclops. Buckle up, Bloomcast listeners. Gonna be, it's gonna be a good one. These were these were two of of the chapters apparently that James Joyce had the most fun writing, Sirens and Cyclops, and certainly will have quite a lot to say. Yes. So until then, take care. Happy reading. À très très bientôt.